After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. I'm back. It's Raghu with Mind Rolling, and I'm so happy to meet, not only to meet Omit Safi, who is a new friend, but getting older by the day. It's been at least two months or something, uh, and a mutual friend is uh, Sharon Salzberg, and so we're really happy to have you here, Omit. Thank you. It's a real joy to be with you. Uh, and just uh, everybody... Uh, to get you aware right away, uh, Omid is at Duke University taking care, I, I think, uh, chairman of the Islamic uh, Studies program. Um, something yeah, like that? A director or, director, or something. Chairman, like that. CEO. Uh, servant, CEO. Uh, whatever the, <laughs> the title these days yeah. is. Yeah. Uh, but specializing in uh, Islamic mystical studies. Right? Would that be correct? What a what a joyful thing it is to have your job be the the study of yeah, really. the evil sages and these really. teachers of love. I know. It's really anyhow. And also uh Omid's been contributing for years to On Being, Krista Tippett's uh beautiful radio show and a blog. And uh and now you're actually gonna be on Be Here Now Network. So you're going to look out for Omid in the next uh, couple of weeks, uh, which will be uh, mid, mid-ish mid August, mid-late August, something like that, of 2018. So we welcome you to the network beyond this show. So thank you for thank coming. You. Yeah. Um, and when uh, Omid and I first talked, he uh, we talked about traditions and his tradition, and the tra- which is really is, uh, and you'll go into uh, the Sufi tradition within Islam, which I think is an important, important point. And then our tradition coming out of Bhakti Yoga in in India, and the the way in which these two traditions meld into each other is is really pretty uh, graceful, actually. So uh, we we have so many bifurcations in so much of, uh, of, of these two traditions, uh, I think people, everybody, but it's through a different prism, which I think will really be interesting and bring out different um, aspects of, of these traditions in a way that is even a little bit more connective. And, uh, and we are talking about primarily, uh, uh, also, of course, I have to mention 
Radical Loved, the new book. Well, it's new, fairly new book. I'm going to hold it up. There it is. That uh, is just out. Uh, and it has incredible translations of many, many, many different mystic poets alongside of some narrative from from Omid. And, you know, we'll, we'll go. I picked out a few that I liked. I thought well, maybe we could read a couple of poems while we're at it. Um, yeah, it seems like a beautiful day to spend yeah, that. Right. <laughs> yeah, really. Why don't we start with what is a Sufi? Let's start there so everybody gets a grasp of the core of what we're talking about. Right, right. Well, um, so at, at the heart of it, um, it is about the heart. Uh, <laughs> it is about uh, people who live into their heart. Uh, it is a, um, it's a heartful existence um, where you, you seek to walk this path of love. Um, and not surprisingly, it has a lot in common with the bhakti tradition, um, uh, that comes out of the South Asian tradition. Um, it is that notion of love where you see love as something much more than just an emotion. Uh, you see love as something um, much more bold and fierce on one hand and uh, tender on the other hand than it just being uh, a feeling. Uh, you really see love as... Uh, the force, the eruption that brings life uh, into being, that is response, that is reality itself. Uh, there is no existence apart from this love. And it is this love that brings us here. It is this love that sustains us here. And for these mystics, uh, uh, you know, I sometimes speak of this as a cosmic current of love that we have to merge back into. Uh, and when we do, it will carry us back into that same divine and sacred origin um, where we come from. So it's our home, it's our destination, it's also the path whereby we get back home. Hmm. And, and that's core to the Sufi uh, tradition and what it is I mean, many, many in, of us in the West connected with the Sufi tradition back in the day when we were investigating all the Eastern, uh, various Eastern, Eastern practices and Eastern mysticism in general. And in fact, uh, Ramdas, who, as you know, we're, this is what Be Here Now Network comes from his Be Here Now, uh, was very close to uh, Sufi Sam. Yeah, and, that's right. And that was my first uh, knowledge of of that tradition and the way that he embodied. I actually never met him personally, but so many people in common. Uh, the way that he embodied it as a real trickster, as well as everything else. Uh, Absolutely, and and you know, different Sufis. You meet some of them, and uh, some of them have this uh, almost overflowing. Um, presence of love that you just can't help but melt when you're in their presence. Uh, there's some of them um, who embody something really noble and, and dignified, regal almost. You feel like you're in the presence of the king and queens of the realm of the spirit. And then there are some of them who are rascals uh, and these rogues who um, are subversive to the core of their being. Mm. 
Um, and when you spend time with different teachers, uh, you start to see these different flavors that, that come through in, in that way. And um, Morshit Sam, Sam Lewis, um, um, Sufi Sam, um, as he was uh, called at different times, um, he was a, a student and a disciple of the first known Sufi to have come to Europe and North America, uh, an Indian uh, Sufi and musician named Hazrat Naid Khan, uh, who was sent by his master um, with the mission of uniting the East and the West through music and through love. Um, and I say the first known, because uh, surely he wasn't the first one. Um, one of the things that we sometimes forget is, you know, we, we, we make up these um, stories and these genealogies for ourselves about where did these teachings come from and who was the first this and the first that. Um, and one of the points that I think sometimes is good to remember is um, based on the best that we know, there were some 12 million human beings who were stolen and enslaved from West Africa and brought over to the New World during the period of transatlantic slavery. And at different points in time, somewhere between 15 and 25% of those West Africans were Muslim. And almost all of them were Sufis. Um, so this is something that we don't sufficiently kind of pay attention to, but the Sufi tradition, this mystical tradition, far from being something marginal, um, it's actually the dominant expression of Islam in many cultures. Um, and we think about places like South Asia and Iran and Turkey, places where um, Rumi and Qawwali music comes from. Um, we don't often tend to think about Africa, and in particular, sub-Saharan Africa. Um, you'd be hard-pressed in, in, place, in places in West Africa, places like Senegal, places mm. where so many of these West African Sufis um, were stolen and enslaved. You'd be hard-pressed to find a Muslim who is not a Sufi. It, it, almost all West African Sufis have this very strong Sufi tradition. So I, I, I oftentimes mention that to say that, you know, we think the legacy of Sufi Sam and his teacher, Hazrat Naid Khan, that these were the first Sufis to have come to Europe and North America. But actually, what we think of as the West, uh, it is built through the work of African slaves and their descendants who come from a very deep spiritual tradition, millions of whom come from this Muslim mystical background. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. That's why I would have liked to audit your class. <laughs> well, uh, well, you know, forget auditing. How about conversations? I am, I'm all into <laughs> conversing with ourselves. And, and, you know, I just think it's important in this day and age, as we pursue these conversations about the heart and the heart level and consciousness and works of that deal with awareness, which is, of course, what we're all here for, um, you know, to also keep an eye on the world that we inhabit and the world that we're creating 
And some of these very difficult conversations that we're also having about immigrants and refugees and issues of race and class. Um, and, and to remember that those same mystical traditions have a lot to teach us about these other conversations. Mm. And that even what we tend to think of as the West doesn't exist by itself without the teachings and the presence and the contribution and the stolen labor of these great mystics of Africa. Mm. Wow. You know, the word that you keep repeating is a word that has lost all its luster, mm. yeah. hasn't it? Love. I mean, Love. I can't even, I'll tell you, when we talk to people, we, uh, not we, me, I always put unconditional before that to give it, to get it as far away as uh, as possible from the the kind of business of love as we know it here, the give and take, I'll do for you, you do for me kind of a thing. So what do yeah. we do with some of these words, Omid? I mean, love, God, devotion, surrender. You know, when Ramdas when he came back first time from India and he, he said, you know, I have a few things here that I think it would be pretty hard to be talking about. And it was those, you know, f four or five things. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So yeah, I think you're exactly right that these are words which have become cheapened and abased. Um, they've lost their full potency. Um, but I do think that words, just like people, can be redeemed. Uh, they can be restored. They can be rejuvenated. Um, you know, uh, this word love, you know, people talk about um, you can go on Facebook and you can love a message and you can love your lunch and you can love a person. Uh, there is something about love, which I think in a lot of our modern Western society um, is both ubiquitous, um, but also devalued, ironically. Um, it's, um, you know, I'm a big fan of the movie Princess Bride. Mm -hmm. And there's that funny line in there. Uh, I do not think that this word means what you think it means. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and when we go into any of these traditions, the word love is a lot more robust. It's a lot fuller. It's a lot more all-consuming than just loving um, a Facebook message or loving your lunch and kind of what have you. I think love for a lot of people, it's an embarrassment. Uh, it is... And it's also something that we perpetually narrow down in scope to a physical manifestation of a particularly sexualized form of love. Um, and the mystics that I love <laughs> to surround myself with and to hopefully pick up something from them, um, they go in the opposite direction. They want a maximal uh, a grand sense of love. And they keep asking you, can you love a friend? Can you love uh, your parents? Can you love a stranger? Um, one of them that I love, um, this uh, 12th century mystic um, who writes a beautiful book on radical love, he even says, can you love snow? When you see <laughs> snowfall, right? Does something in you become joyful and ecstatic 
when you see snow falling down, right? Um, and so many people that we come across are lamenting the sense of living these loveless forms of existence. They might complain about being in a loveless marriage, in a loveless relationship. And I think the mystics want to tell you, no, no, we actually, we're like the fish in the ocean. It's precisely because we are immersed in love that it's invisible to us. And it's a matter of retraining our hearts and our gills and our lungs to know that without love, we don't breathe well. Um, I think that's one of it. Then the other side is love has also become not just sexualized and narrowed in scope. It's also transactional. Yeah. Right. If I tell you that I love you, will you then promise to do X, Y, and Z to me and for me? And there is an aspect of love for these mystics which is actually about the dissolving of the ego, right? There is no more I, this bounded notion of I that is cut off from Raghu, that is cut off from the person listening to our conversation. Uh, we melt, we melt away. Um, and, and one way that they talk about this, a way that I've sometimes talked about this, um, if you and I are alive today, it's because when we were babies and didn't have this strong sense of an eye, didn't have the willpower to get out and go make our own sandwich, we woke up in the middle of the night and we were hungry and we cried out because we didn't even know where our bodies ended and how to put milk back into our belly. So we did the only thing that we could, which is we cried out for help. And somebody, usually a mom, gets up in the middle of the night and what they don't do is they don't do the accounting of love. They don't do the calculus of love. They don't do the transaction of love. They don't sit there and say, well, you know, in the last three nights, I've gotten 15 hours of sleep. So yeah, this baby is crying right now, but I think she will get over it by the time she's 15, right? At the point where you hear the baby cry, love compels you to get out of bed. And at that point, you're not thinking about your own tiredness. You just know that you have to reach beyond and take that most intimate part of you, your breast, and put it in the baby's mouth to alleviate their suffering, mm. to give of your tenderness to another being. That's love. That's real love. And if you and I are alive today, it's because somebody loved us like that. Yeah. Somebody willed us into survival. And then hopefully we can pay it forward to somebody else. I think that's the kind of love that a lot of us are trying to get back to. That notion of love and of living in loving relationships, friendships, romantic partnerships, having a parent and a grandparent, having a child, a sibling, having neighbors 
where you actually love the person who lives across the street and five doors down and one zip code over from you. And then to be able to say, just as that mother said for you and me, and hopefully we can say for our own babies, just as the mother says, I got to reach beyond my notion of myself to love and serve this person, to will them, to love them, to nurture them into survival. We can say that about our, our fellow human beings and about other sentient beings that we share this tiny, tiny planet mm. with. Mm. Absolutely. You know, it reminds me also of His Holiness, who, Dalai Lama, who says so often, much would be solved if there was mothers like my mother who yeah. nurtured me and loved me unconditionally. And that is the basis for the development of compassion. If whatever you see in me is from my mother, he said. Absolutely. And, and you know, I think um, you and I, and I'm willing to bet that uh, quite a few of the people who listen to our network, they've had the fortune of traveling around the country, traveling around the world, you know, and, and, and as I travel, people speak different languages, the food is different, um, their customs are different, their architecture is different, their music is different. But as I sit with people, one of the only constants is everybody loves their babies. Everybody wants their best for their babies. They want food in their belly. They want dignity in their bones. They want a roof over their head. And at that level, I think there's actually a deep and intimate connection. Um, I know how much I love my babies, and I know other people love their babies just as much. And I should never allow to happen to other people's babies what I wouldn't want to have happen to my own. Right? That's actually an incredibly beautiful ethic of love that, as His Holiness says, we should be basing our society on. Yeah. One of the other aspects of the Sufis that uh, you talk about that uh, I think is an essential part of what you, um, you and I talked about in terms of offering on, this, on the podcast you're going to do, and you as a human being and as a teacher and so on, is the, concept, the Sufi concept of mingling, a love yeah. mingled and mingling. I think that's yeah. uh, something to explicate, uh, Omid. Yeah, it's a beautiful, beautiful teaching. Um, and, and it's one that the Sufis themselves grew into over time. Um, so when their teachings were first coming around, they oftentimes made um, a little bit of a distinction between um, the love of God and the love of humanity. And um, some of the earlier mystics, in the way that we've also seen in the Christian tradition, in the Hindu tradition, in the Buddhist tradition, they had a very strong ascetic, world-denying tendency which, in which they would say, you know, what we want to do is just to really meditate on God. And this worldly relations are just a kind of distraction. And the sooner we can get over them, the mm -hmm. sooner we can get back to that real work, which is, you know, sitting and thinking about God and the sacred. And as the centuries went on, 
and the Sufis kind of really matured into the fullness of their tradition, they changed that teaching. And so they started to say in a language that, you know, sounds a lot like Bob Marley uh, and the reggae tradition, there is one love. Uh, and, and as we are trying to become whole as individuals, as we're trying to recognize the oneness, the wholeness, the unity of our human community, as we're trying to live a unified existence with other creatures, it's also important to have a notion of this mingled love, this one love. Um, so, you know, one of the figures that um, I talk about in this Radical Love book, Ahmad Ghazali, he says, I'll write you a book of love. As long as you ask me not to make a distinction between divine love and human love, because there is one love. Uh, and this is from a thousand years ago mm -hmm. that they're saying this. And um, I've got a poem that um, uh, in the book, maybe I'll read that. Yeah, uh, it's, please. It's from, it's from Rumi. Um, and, you know, Rumi is, is uh, well known to a lot of people and it's always a joy to meet people whose lives have been shaped and moved by, um, by his love poetry. Uh, and in a sense, I think what I'm trying to do is to remind people that, um, you know, Rumi is not a one-off. And uh, you don't get His Holiness the Dalai Lama without an existing Buddhist tradition. You don't get a Gandhi without an existing Hindu tradition. And you don't get a Rumi without an existing tradition of Sufi love. Um, and so I'm kind of trying to, to uh, fill in the gaps a little bit. And if they love um, Mount Everest, uh, to remind them that there's a whole Himalayas that have been pushing Everest to ever higher heights, mm -hmm. quite literally. Um, so this is one of those poems from, from, from Rumi, uh, and it's where that word mingled is actually the rhyming word at the end of every line. He says, um, in the original Persian, and he says, look, love mingles with lovers. See spirit mingling with body. How long will you see life as this and that, good and bad? Look at how this and that are mingled. A prescription, perhaps, for some of the polarization that we're going through right now. Absolutely, uh, absolutely. You know, there's something else that I, I noticed, Omid. I mean, that struck me, really. Uh, and that's, to be a mystic of the path of radical love necessitates tenderness in our intimate dealings. Tenderness. Yeah. I, I've never really, I mean, that expression, I, I can really relate it with the the mystical tradition, the Sufi mystical tradition, somehow, without my brain. Yeah, but, but it they, it's such a wonderful. I, I guess because I'm so oriented to uh, part of my transformation from 
all these years has been music. Uh huh. And I particularly have loved Koali music. I had a label and actually had a Koali artist on it, Nusrat's uh, nephew, actually. Oh, wow. Yeah. Badar Ali Khan. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, if anybody really wants to get at their core, I mean, Omid, you are absolutely uh, eloquently describing the core of, of the Sufi mysticis, mystics and the core of, of what this love really is. But I do urge people, and I think we'll, we'll put something up actually on the show notes page. Uh, and, uh, and of course I did love Nusrat Fatih Ali Khan. Of so course. Much. And, and, of so, course. and when, yeah. it, when anybody is able, what I'm trying to say is when anybody is, listens to that especially in its physical presence i mean being at that live a live concert with him he's no longer with us you get that tremendous power of love and then you get that tremendous tenderness so that's where i i could understand that in a more visceral way yeah and and um you know i had one of my teachers um say this to me one time um, in a way that has kind of struck with me is um, uh, that if we think of love, um, think of this love as having a movement. And when it moves outward, it shows up as justice. Uh, that to love humanity is to con- be concerned about their welfare and their well being. Um, and so the concern about issues of justice in the world is actually the work of love, that if you care for the people, you want them to be fed, you want them to have um, clean water, you want them to have a roof over their head, and most of all, you want them to have dignity. And that's, that same love moves inward, it becomes tenderness. So that if you're somebody who aspires towards a spiritual life, a mystical life, or for that matter, somebody who aspires towards a life of justice and a life of activism, one of the first things that you got to observe in them and in ourselves is how tender are you? And tenderness is one of those qualities that in many ways is in rare supply in our society today because the way that we have conceived of something called strength has an almost, I don't know, has a level of brutality built into it that we take as a sign of being a strong person, a person's tendency to bulldoze others in their path. And these mystics are actually teaching us a very different way to live, that the strongest of the people are the ones who are the most tender because that kind of tenderness comes from a vulnerability of having your heart open to your fellow human beings and to yourself and to God. And I don't, I think one thing that has to disappear before any tenderness can uh, make a home Anger has to disappear. Yeah, right. Cannot right. have tenderness if you have even the smallest grains of anger operating. They, that house cannot be filled with tenderness when anger is in it. So 
And I think that what you were just saying about uh, it's uh, Sharon also says uh, we we were talking about love at one point, and she said, "Yeah, no, it's not about love. Is not making you weak, okay? Yeah, it's not making you weak, and that's another you know." Uh, thought process in terms of being strong in this world and taking care of stuff. So you, you know, you, you can't go there at all. Yeah. And and I think, you know, anger is such a tricky um, concept um, because it is a double-edged sword that oftentimes cuts against ourselves before it ever injures somebody else is, um, uh, you know, sometimes we think of anger as uh, something that we hold towards another being, but the truth of it is that we ourselves are also punished by it. Uh, it's Big a poison time. that we're sort of carrying. Um, and, uh, and I think I can look back on, on my own life and notice uh, times that, that I've carried that poison longer than I, than I should have. Yeah, yeah um, there's a long line in, in there, Omid. You'll yeah, have to get in it. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I think, you know, the part that I hope um, we can uh, flesh it out a little bit and open it up and, and explore, um, there's the anger which is toxic and it's poisonous and it wishes to destroy another person because we think that somehow to cut somebody else down to size elevates us. And that, I think, is spiritually destructive. There is also a different kind of anger, which sometimes instead of calling it rage, I call it um, uh, being outraged, mm. um, which I think there is a righteous kind of outrage where you look at something that's happening in the world, not as God has created, but as we have permitted, and you know somewhere deep in your bones that this is outrageous, that this is unjust and it's unacceptable, that it's not loving and it is not tender. Um, it is not right or just or loving or tender that in the richest country in the history of humanity, we have children in Michigan who would be drinking brown water. Um, it is not right or just that about half of our children might be living close to poverty, right? And I think those are places where not so much anger, but a sense of we can do better. We should be better. Um, and I find this unacceptable that we have allowed this circumstance to become every day. And I do think that that kind of finding situations outrageous, which is not about tearing down anybody, but it's actually about protecting and loving and uplifting people who might find themselves vulnerable at the moment. I do find that quite appropriate and actually a very spiritual type of work. Yeah, maybe one could say also that when anger is stripped of attachment to it, then it becomes a righteous fuel to take action as long as, of course, you are not 
involved in it in the way that unfortunately many of us are on a, on a day-to-day basis, especially when it comes to righteousness. That's right. Uh, so there, um, you know, it struck me, uh, I never heard of him. Al Sulami. Yeah. And he, you say, was a key figure in identifying what's called the adab, compassionate, selfless behavior that has, uh, that has been seen as much more than merely a component of the path. It has been equated with the whole of the Sufi paths. Talk about that. That's, that's, yeah. He must be somebody. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and, and again, you know, this notion that um, what the whole path is, um, it's based on how you treat human beings, mm. yeah. right? Yeah. Um, that, um, and, and, and it has to be the, it, it, kind and um, uh, treating a person, you know, one, one thing that sometimes people say is uh, in many of these traditions, writing was sacred, right? Books were sacred. And when you would pick up a holy book, um, people would kiss it, they would touch it to their forehead, it might have a special cloth wrapping that you would unveil it, and then you would very reverentially open and start reading, Mm. right? And they would say, just as you might see a book and writing as a kind of sacred scripture, treat each human being as a divine scripture. Uh, what is the revelation that's coming to you through this person? And, and this idea that we can also learn something from everybody. Um, you know, human beings are always in flux. Um, they say we're like the, the phases of the moon, that it's the same moon, but sometimes it's the full moon. Sometimes it's waxing and waning, and sometimes it's even hidden. And we ourselves are like this. Uh, And we might even be like that in the same minute, that we might have some really beautiful and lovely qualities, and we might have some other qualities that is um, in process. Uh, and, And so they say, you know, at every moment, either somebody is more evolved than we are, more beautiful than we are, in which case, We can learn something from them. We can emulate them. Or in that particular breath, um, they might be exemplifying a really ugly kind of behavior, in which case we can still learn from them. Because we are mirrors to one another. Uh, And, you know, it's just as... um, I think all of us have this experience sometimes of when you hear your own voice on, uh, on a recording, right? Um, someone plays for you a voicemail that you've left for them, and you're like, is that what I sound like, you know? Uh, and um, we don't know the fullness of what we even look like because we're always seeing, at best, a reflection of ourselves, but we see it in somebody else. Uh, and so I think that notion that w- our spiritual journey is our own, nobody else can take on your journey for you. Um, you know, you must be the light and the Buddha at some level to your own self. But we don't go on this journey alone. 
that's the reason why we need each other. We need friends, we need companions, we need fellow travelers to, um, to walk with us, yeah. to be our mirrors in that yeah. sense. Yeah. Now, I know just because of having this wonderful book, Radical Love, I, uh, Rumi is certainly a mainstay for you. Okay, there's no doubt about that. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I, I, uh, I love Rumi, and I love Hafiz. Yes. So I, I want to give him his due here. Hafiz, you say, loathes spiritual hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. That's why he's my favorite. And mocks yeah. those who perform acts of piety to impress the gullible. Oh, God, that's so great. But yeah. he, he's a seeker after God's own heart, one who sees the, defi the divine in the form of his earthly beloveds, which is a, that's a major point in many of the poets, how they bring that in. That, that, that is, and it makes it, that to me is a radical part of this whole thing. And here, here's his, I'll just, uh, if you don't mind, I want to read this Hafiz Please. thing. I love yeah. it. So he's, he's brought the divine into the form of an earthly beloved, a rose-like beauty in my embrace, wine at hand, beloved, pleased next to me, pleased, beloved, pleased. Next to me, the sultan of the whole world would be a servant. Uh, I mean, that's so great. Yeah, and and you know it's it's so lovely because um, the word Hafiz it means somebody who's memorized the whole Quran, yeah. right? Um, uh, he um, this is a person of immense piety, and the same pious person is the one who will say, you know, they keep telling us that when we get to paradise, we're going to be sitting our arms around our beloved. Well, I've got my beloved right here, right now. So this right here, right now is a little taste of paradise for me, right? Uh, there's that very beautiful sense that he has, that Rumi has, that many of these other mystics have, that we can have a heavenly existence right here and right now. And that what we think of as salvation, as illumination, as being with God, this doesn't happen in some mythical future. That it is actually a possibility uh, for us in this life. Uh, the poem that you read by Hafez the very page before it, um, you see one that almost 150 years before Rumi had written. Um, and and uh, it's a short one, which I love. Uh, and Rumi says, paradise will be exalted, they say. Fine wine, a beautiful beloved. Hmm. Here and now, you might have been writing this for our network. Uh, here and now, we are intoxicated, cuddling with my beloved. So it is now as it shall be then. Mm. Right? 
um, which is not a call for hedonism, right? It's not a call about let's just live every pleasure of the flesh for tomorrow we shall all die, yeah. right? Yeah. It is the sense that the, if there is real love, if there's real tenderness, then that same divine love shows up when you are holding your beloved. Whether that beloved is a child, I think I saw a puppy or, a, or some uh, four-legged friend behind you a few minutes ago, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. That's love right there. Uh, any human yeah. being, any human being would be a saint if we could love the way that our dogs love us. <laughs> And that's the truth. That is the truth. Yeah. That is, it. you know, and way back when, when we followed Ramdas back to India and we were able to meet somebody who was living that, it was uh, the, the idea of the potential that is in us, smack in front of us, was pretty awesome. So awesome. So, yeah. Uh, the, another roomy. This this is I I was always wondering where did Ramdas get the uh, phrase "be here now"? I mean I do know yeah Bhagavan Das told him what are you doing stop thinking just be here now, but here's way I I bet he saw this uh, wherever you are be right there fully present Rumi right. he yes. must have read that <laughs> well and and you know it's not a surprise that uh, the deeper we go in the ocean. Um, or the higher you go on the mountain, the more we see the insights of these traditions uh, connecting to one another. Uh, you know, one thing that I oftentimes tell my own students is, uh, you know, we can be swimming in an ocean, and at some point you say, this is the Pacific Ocean, and this is the Atlantic Ocean, and this is the Indian Ocean, but water is water. And all of these oceans, to use my favorite word, mingle. The oceans are not apart from one another. And these spiritual teachings, they have their distinct path. They have their distinct teaching. They certainly have their own particular flavor and practices, but they mingle and they connect and they overlap and they mutually support one another. And I'd like to think they come from the same source and they lead us to the same source. Absolutely, 100%. In India, they say sub-ek, Maharaj uses that word. It's all one. There's only one. One, one, one. Right. Oh, God, that's a... um, And I don't think the Sufis go very far without a tremendous sense of humor, right? Right, 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 exactly. Because laughter, right? Laughter, joyful existence, uh, you know, these are, there's something in us that opens up when we're laughing. And and it's one of the things that I've always marveled at. pay attention to the way that children laugh, right? They laugh with their whole body, and very few adults laugh like that, uh, except for saints. Yeah. Uh, The saintly ones, (laughs) you know, when you look at uh, His Holiness or you look at Desmond Tutu, 
there's something absolutely childlike about them. Uh, and, and that tells me that on one hand, um, yes, they have embodied and channeled so much beauty and so much light and so much wisdom. And they're also living in that childlike state of awe and wonder mm -hmm. and openness around the world. And it also tells me that there's this extraordinary violence that we do to our children in disciplining them into something that we call being an adult, being a grown up. Being a somebody. Being a somebody where it's not okay to laugh like that. It's not okay to jump in puddles. It's not okay to go dancing in the rain. And I think a lot of what the spiritual life is, it is that return to that childlike state of awe and wonder and innocence. Mm. Um, and that child never goes away. Uh, the child might be imprisoned, the child might be buried, the child might be denied, but that child is still inside us, which I think is the reason that spiritual teachings can, can speak to us. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this one... Um poem that made me think of of the reality of sense of humor along with the that passionate love that fierce determined love uh, this it's by someone named Sadi never yeah. heard of him before this yeah. is by the way everybody out there anybody who loves this mystical poetry at all and certainly of the Sufi tradition has so he uh, you've translated so many wonderful poems uh, oh it's so great this one's called heart thief each day you come with a new love a fresh way each time i look you get lovelier i said i'll take you to court and ask for my heart back i fear you'll also steal the judge's heart yeah. is that great i mean Isn't that thanks of that yeah. What a wonderful thing. And, you know, there's another um, story that I have. And as I said, a lot of people have heard of Rumi. Um, some people might have heard of Hafez. Um, unless you're kind of a hardcore Sufi nerd, uh, you probably have not heard of someone called Kharakani. Um, But I've got this awesome story in this book. Um, and the story is called uh, A Deal with God. Um, and, and I'll give you the gist of the story rather than reading it kind of for you. So Kharagani has this dream one night in which he hears the voice of God come into him. And he hears God telling him, you know, I know every hypocrisy that's in your heart. I know every wrong thought and wrong intention that you have had. Uh, do you want me to go and tell people uh, about everything that I know about you? so that they find out just what a hypocrite you are. And he talks right back to God. And he's like, my Lord, I know that you created humanity, and I know that you love them more than a mother loves her newborn child. Do you want me to go and tell them how much you love them, that no matter what you tell them in scripture, you could never bring yourself 
to torment and punish a single one of your creation. And if I do, then everybody would stop praying and fasting and going on pilgrimage because they know they have nothing to fear from you. And then Kharagani says there was a long pause and then the voice of God came back to me and said, I say nothing, you say nothing. <laughs> right? I mean, that's <laughs> awesome. That's like a hilarious back and forth banter with the divine. So that their relationship with God, yes, it is a Lord and master, and it is a friend to friend, and it is a lover and beloved relationship. And I think all of these are important. Very much. Well, this has been super. We could do this every uh, every couple of... Well, you're doing this. You're going to do this. Everybody, you can... You can tune in to uh, Omit's uh, podcast to just check in with Be Here Now Network. Put yourself on the mailing list because there'll be a mailing announcing the debut of uh, the podcast. And uh, so uh, I think this is just a a wonderful way to integrate uh, different traditions. This is the purpose of what Love, Serve, Remember stands for and is so uh, just really i'm happy to have you here right now and then happy to tune into the podcast as they come along oh and 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 just in terms of uh this is many people one of the tough things about uh being a westerner on the spiritual path quote unquote is this uh caught in this uh duality and schism of polarization within oneself which is why it's so easy to fall into it when it's happening outside of ourselves right is uh feeling uh i'm no good i'm just a bad sinner and i'm going you know i'm going to hell in a bucket well the grateful dead said but i believe i'll enjoy the ride that (laughs) that's anyhow here's something i'm ending this with my guy Hafiz. Oh, there you go. It's called Forgiveness. Hmm. A secret whisper came to me from the tavern's corner, right? He's in the tavern. Drink. He forgives. God's grace is bigger than my sin. Bigger than my sin. Redemption is out there, everybody. Yeah, and it's, it's in us also. Uh, you know, the medicine, the, we, the source of the pain and suffering is inside us, but so is the healing. Uh, so is the medicine that our hearts cry out for. And, uh, you know, one of these other um, mystics that's in the book, he says, when I meet my Lord, um, I'm only going to have one regret, God, which is that I would not have sinned more uh, <laughs> so that you could have forgiven yeah. me more. Right? <laughs> so and, and so, I mean, how lovely it is to let a fear drop so that the only thing that remains and the only thing that connects you to God and takes you to God is that love. Yes, indeed. Thank you so much, Omid. Thank you for uh, having me, Raghu. Appreciate uh, it. It's great to hang out with you. I really do want to do this. Even From time to time, we got to get together. It's it's always fun. And read poetry and uh, mystic poetry. That's it. Uh, so this is Mind Rolling, BeHereNowNetwork.com. And as I said, we've got a tremendous storm, and God is talking to us right now. Dramatic, going over, dramatic. Yeah, very power. dramatic, okay, to end it like this. 
Uh, go to BeHereNowNetwork.com, everybody, and uh, look for OMID. And as I say, sign up because then you'll get all of the uh, announcements. And we shall see you next week. Thank you again. Thank you. Blessings.